Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. On this podcast, we will be going episode by episode through the NBC series Parenthood, offering commentary, appreciation, and hopefully lots of great conversation between two old friends. Yeah. Caleb and I decided to start this podcast really, I think, because of the pandemic. And I was looking for maybe a little hope and comfort in these times and revisiting favorite TV shows, especially with a friend who lives so far away. You know, that just seemed like the perfect way to do that. We have known each other for probably over 20 years We are both from Pittsburgh, Kansas, a small town in Southeast Kansas. Melissa and my oldest sister are great, great friends. And over time, Melissa and I became friends as well. And now our whole families are friends. I, after high school, moved to New York, where I am currently and have been since I moved here for college. In the midst of this pandemic, I've been all alone in my Astoria apartment and if I can't be with, uh, with family, it's nice to be watching the Braverman family <laughs> with one of my closest friends. Oh, I love that so much. Yes, and, and I still live in Kansas, so we are doing this remotely, which is really fun, and it has been a great way to stay connected. And I now live two hours away from, uh, from our hometown. And yeah. That's, that's, where, that's where we are. Because this show was all about family, we thought that we would just give a brief little rundown of what our families look like. I had a mother and a father, and I have two older sisters, and I have no children. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> that's Team Hoyer. <laughs> yeah. What about team, team Fight? Or Fight Johnson? What's up there? What's up there? <laughs> My maiden name is Fight, so that's my um, childhood family, and that is my mom and my dad, and uh, my dad passed away when I was 16, and then my brother, who is 11 years older, and uh, Team Johnson is real little, that's just my husband, Mark, and me, and our three dogs, no children also, so we're who better to do a parenthood podcast than two childless friends? I'll have to consult Alanis Morissette to be sure, but I think that qualifies as irony. <laughs> yes, I think she she would know. Uh, throughout our podcast, we'll be welcoming guests. And uh, each time we meet someone, we will get what their family team is all about. When you're listening to this podcast, we will assume that you have already watched whatever we're discussing. So it won't be a beat-by-beat recap. It will be more a reflection on what we assume we have all just seen. As we go through the series, our goal will be to refrain from spoilers as much as possible and to kind of just evaluate every episode as it comes to us We will try not to say, oh, this reflects on this season six episode in such and such way. But for this first episode, we thought that we should begin where this whole show begins, which is with the 1989 film of Parenthood. Because we'll be analyzing the film first and how it relates to the series as a whole, there may be a few spoilers in this episode. So if you are the type that doesn't want any spoilers whatsoever, 
you might want to begin with the pilot episode podcast. Yeah, because the whole time I was watching this movie, I just the most fascinating part was to see how different the characters were from their eventual series counterparts. And yeah, I think our discussion wouldn't be nearly as rich if we refrain from spoilers in this particular episode. So just go see us in our next episode if you're if you're not wanting spoilers. So Parenthood was released on August 2nd, 1989. It was directed by Ron Howard. The screenplay was by Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, from a story by Lowell Gans, Babalu Mandel, and Ron Howard. Uh, It was the number one film upon its release. I didn't know that. It eventually grossed $126 million worldwide, and it was made for only $20 million. So it was a big hit, and uh, it had very positive reviews from critics. It it currently has a 91% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It got two Academy Award nominations, one for Diane Weist as Best Supporting Actress, and one for Randy Newman for Best Song. Wow. I had no idea. Um, Diane Weist, I got to say, deserves that. Like, I thought she was my favorite. Maybe I shouldn't say that right off the top, <laughs> but I just, I loved her. That was Diane Weist's only Oscar nomination that didn't result in a win. Oh, wow. <laughs> she's been nominated three times, and she's won twice. That's amazing. Uh, she lost that year. I shouldn't say lost. Not a contest, but uh, isn't it? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. But uh, best supporting actress that year was Brenda Fricker in My Left Foot. Brenda Fricker, who I know mostly from <laughs> Angels in the Outfield. Oh, <laughs> that's fantastic! And uh, Randy Newman's song Lost to Under the Sea from Little Mermaid. Well, so Melissa, yeah. What did you think of the movie? Well, first, I should, maybe I should say you had seen the movie before, right? Yes. All right. So I have a fun bit of trivia to start out my recollection. I, I rented that movie when I was like 12 years old um, because I had a crush on someone in it. And I think you will never guess who my crush was on. But go ahead and try. Well, from the way you're framing it, it seems like I shouldn't go with the obvious choice, which if you were 11 or 12, I would think maybe it was Leaf Phoenix, now Joaquin Phoenix. So I'm not gonna guess him. Yeah. And I will guess Steve Martin. <laughs> um, in a way, because my crush was on the young version of him that opens up the whole movie. Um, he's a child. But I was a child. I knew him from the movie Three Ninjas, and I had a super crush on him. His name is Max Elliott Slade. I looked him up. He's done like nothing, hardly, since then. Um, but yeah, I, I just, that's the whole reason I came to Parenthood in the first place. I looked him up. I was like, what movies has Colt, I think was his character's name? What movies has Colt been in? Oh, Parenthood. So I rented it. Um, and I remembered it shockingly well. I wonder if I watched it many times when I was a kid. But um, I was surprised at how much I loved it as an adult because sometimes the things I, you know, that we love as kids turn out to be terrible. And I thought it was excellent. So that there, there you go. There's my thought. What about you? How did you, I'm just curious, when you looked up what other movies this actor from Three Ninjas had been in, but you were 12, 
how did you look it up? This would have been pre-internet, right? Would it have been pre-internet? How did could I look you it up? go to the library and look up Max Elliott you know, Slade? I did have a little book. It was like, what's his name? Martin Mull. He was like a, a, oh, Len- a Leonard Malton. Maybe that's it. Why did I, why did I think his name was that? That's the principal from Sabrina the Teenage <laughs> Witch. What? Martin Mull. <laughs> Well, no, it, you're right about Leonard Martin. Is that his name? Malton. Malton. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yes. He had this like book where you could look up movies and see how many stars they got. I don't like I guess it was like a version of Rotten Tomatoes, you know, in the phone book era. And I think at the end they had like a cross section with actors. But would Max Elliott Slade have been in that? I I don't know. Somehow I knew what movies he'd been in, but you're right. I don't remember how I looked that up. I just somehow did. You know, it was probably Bot Magazine. Actually, Bot Magazine probably told me what other movies all the cute boys had been in. You're Jonathan Brandis. You're Jonathan Taylor Thomas. You know, you're Max Elliott Slades. Critically important. Critically. (laughs) I hadn't ever seen this movie. I remember seeing a little bit of it on TV once, but literally all that I saw then, or at least all that I remember seeing, was this clip. Hi, Daddy. What's the matter, honey? You don't feel so good? Uh-uh. You feel like you want to throw up? Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, Taylor, baby. Oh, sweetie. Oh. Gil, why are you just standing there? I'm waiting for our head to spin around. (laughs) And that was my impression of parenthood. (laughs) Pretty accurate. Oh, it's that that little girl who vomits all over him. Wait, that was your impression of the movie or of like being a parent in general? Of the movie. I was when I, (laughs) so from that time, whenever I saw that, I think I was a teenager. If I ever thought of the movie Parenthood, all I thought about was that scene. (laughs) Although I remember thinking that that scene was very funny. Yeah, the timing is perfect. I I love the okay and then immediate upheaval. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's so sweet. I think the fact that she immediately starts crying adds just that little bit of realism because then I feel so bad for her. I mean, as soon as he gets vomited on, I feel bad for him and I'm laughing at him. But then because she starts crying, I feel like, oh, that poor thing is really sick. She feels awful. And that's exactly how kids are when they throw up. It's a very big deal. It's it's very traumatic. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. So you you enjoyed the movie as an adult then? I really loved it. Oh, that's so great. What really struck me the most about it, I think, and perhaps this is because I was coming to it as a big fan of the show, I was shocked at how funny it was. That to me seemed to be its number one trait. This is a comedy. And the TV show, I think what most people associate it with is crying (laughs) and is, you know, drama and the movie certainly has those moments but those moments feel like things that are revealed in between very funny jokes 
I completely agree. You're you're totally right. It's a it's a very different tone, and I I love both tones. But but yeah, that's probably the way it felt the most different to me. Yeah. I also thought after reflecting on it as a whole movie and then comparing it to the TV show, I always feel like the TV show took a while to find itself to really land in a tone and I always just assumed that that was what a lot of TV shows spend their first season doing is figuring out what kind of show they are now having seen this film I wonder if part of that striking the right tone was trying to copy the tone of the film not entirely successfully in my opinion and then perhaps realizing hey we need to maybe be more of our own thing Because a lot of the first season, I feel like, does contain some of those sillier moments. Yeah. Which do feel like the movie, but they don't, they feel forced on the TV show at times in a way that in the film, I think it feels really effortless. That's such a good point. And, you know, something that I'm remembering is when the show was first advertised, I feel like they were kind of going for a modern family vibe with the way they marketed, you know, like they really played to the humor, you know, like little, little clips and maybe even those um, like record scratch moments, if I'm thinking correctly, you know, like, which just doesn't feel like what the show ultimately became. But yeah, I think that that kind of makes sense. I think they were really trying to market it that way. Yeah. The movie also felt to me like a kind of movie that doesn't seem like it's getting made very much anymore. A movie that is definitely a comedy, and it's a comedy for adults, but it's not an adult comedy. It's not gross-out humor. It's not raunchy. It's super low concept, but it's funny. It's really funny. It reminded me of, like, James L. Brooks movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I thought, yeah, I don't know what the modern equivalent of that is. You know, I th- comedies today, it's like Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler solving murders or Melissa <laughs> McCarthy's an undercover spy. It doesn't feel like, oh, a family. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. seems so simple by comparison. But I think it's the movie's strength. I completely agree on all counts. It is the movie's strength. And I was trying to think, when was the last big family movie that I can think of? And for me, it's The Family Stone, which is still not super recent, maybe 10 years old or something. And even that feels forced in a way that parenthood doesn't because they do things like, have you seen The Family Stone? Uh Uh-huh. Well, spoiler for Family Stone, but you know, like the the idea that like two brothers and two sisters like end up swapping mates, basically, you know, like whatever, it's fun, who cares? But it just feels a little unrealistic in a way that this movie felt to me like 100% realistic. Everything felt totally earned. Every character felt like somebody you would meet. Nothing contrived. Um, nothing just, you know, movie-like, really. Yeah, it just kind of felt like we were truly plopped in and following these characters around. I pulled some reviews of it. Oh, and what idea. we're discussing now reminds me of a lot of what they were noticing. So Roger Ebert's review, he gave the movie four stars. And he said, Ron Howard's Parenthood is a delicate balancing act between comedy and truth, a movie that contains a lot of laughter and yet is more concerned with character than punchlines. It's the best kind of comedy where we recognize the truth of what's happening even while we're smiling and where we eventually acknowledge that there is a truth in comedy that seems 
serious drama never can quite reach. Uh, by the way, Roger Ebert is my all-time favorite movie reviewer, and like I still look up his reviews for you know movies when he was alive, and they always seem right to me. Like he just he he gets it. I don't know. I think he just really hits on it. I love that. And he writes so well too. I mean, just that paragraph is succinct, descriptive, evocative, and so clear. Yeah. Peter Travers in Rolling Stone wrote, uh, Parenthood, heartfelt and howlingly comic, also comes spiced with risk and mischief. Just when you fear the movie might be swept away on a tidal wave of wholesomeness, a line, a scene, or a performance pokes through to restore messy, perverse reality. Though full of bounce and bright jests, the script often cuts deeper than most summer nonsense. Oh, yeah. I think that's also true, too. I did notice in several reviews, people often used the word sitcom to describe the huh. movie. And I, having compared this movie to James Brooks' movies, I know he often gets tagged with a sitcom style as well. And he comes from sitcoms just like uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel do as well. And I think it's a fair observation. But I also think it might be what makes me like those kinds of films so much because there is maybe a little bit of artificiality to it. Like, would Steve Martin in real life, would Gil Buckman be clever enough to stand there with vomit dripping off him and say, <laughs> I'm just waiting for her head to spin around? Probably not. But I buy that the character might, and that's the sort of heightened nature mm. that I really welcome. It's like, yeah, be a little cleverer and a little funnier than we are in real life. But if it's rooted in something real, I'll go with you. Absolutely. Well, um, I'm a poet. Um, and one of my favorite lessons about poetry is that the best thing to do is to get as close to sentimentality as you can without going over. And so I think some sitcoms that maybe didn't age as well from childhood to adulthood um, would be like Full House, no disrespect, you know, like I love that shit when I was a kid. And now um, it does, you know, the, that music comes in, it gets pretty corn, you know, cornball. But I think Peter Travers' review was very right about that. Like, if you worried that that was happening, it really does seem like it skirts up to the edge of sentimentality and then something happens to, to give it a bit of an edge, um, which I, I appreciated a lot. Yeah, I definitely think of that with, like, this line after Diane Weist's daughter, Julie, played by Martha Plimpton, after she gets dumped by her boyfriend. She's crying to her mom and she says... He told me he loved me. Sweetie. How oh, they say that. And then they come. <laughs> I mean, you don't see that joke coming. No pun, in, no pun intended. And it really does just cut that moment that could be really, oh, poor girl. What a sweet mom comforting her with a really kind of brutal observation that's very true and tells you so much about her character. Oh, absolutely. And if I'm remembering that scene correctly, like towards the end of that scene, they both agree that men are scum, right as Diane Weist's son comes into the room and looks kind of wounded, you know, as you would. And like, that's 
not just a joke. You know, I appreciate when a joke does more work than just being a punchline, you know, because that totally falls in line with his character and how confused he feels and how outnumbered he feels sometimes. And so I, I loved that. I thought, you know, that, that whole scene, there's so much going on. Yeah. So let's discuss some of the so parenthood. The film tracks the Buckman family and on the TV series, it would obviously be the Braverman family. They each have four siblings. In the movie, it's Gil, Helen, Susan, and Larry. And obviously those parallels are Adam, Sarah, Julia, and Crosby. Yes. Although I went out of order, Crosby is older than Julia. But I think perhaps Larry might be the youngest one. I think you're right. Because of that line, I never should have had four. And it seems pretty obvious that Frank is wishing his Larry gone and not Susan. So that's an interesting switch. Yeah. If So if Gil is Adam, his wife Karen is Christina on the yes. show. Their son Kevin, who has emotional problems at school, that's all they say, and that they think he needs to be psychologically evaluated. And sent to a special school, by the way. I thought, whoa, those are... Okay. Anyway, yes. Yeah. He would be the Max parallel. Obviously, in the show, they took that kind of vague seed of an idea and gave him an actual diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. Uh, Helen would be the Sarah parallel because they're both single mothers with a daughter and a son. Thus, Gary would be Drew on the TV show. Julie would be Amber. And Julie's eventual husband, Todd, I thought reminded me of Damien the most. Yes. Who's who's her love interest really only in the first episode. And then he comes back very briefly in the middle of the first season. Well, and I did think of all the siblings and then their immediate family. I thought Helen, Sarah, that was the most exact from movie to show. Because I was like, oh, there are whole storylines here, um, you know, that really mirror what happens. I mean, and yes, there is with Kevin slash Max, but Taylor is nothing like Hattie. Taylor's a little girl and Hattie's a teenager, you know, so it was interesting how different some of those parallels were. But I thought the Helen, Sarah parallel was pretty similar. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that Helen was your favorite of the siblings. Yes. I would agree. And I found her family's stories the most interesting. Me too. Not like, oh, she's the only interesting one. But anytime they were on screen, it was sort of a lean in energy from my end. What Do you think that maybe now that we're discussing this, I wonder if it's because her children are the oldest, thus the most fleshed out as characters and there's maybe a little more drama to be engaged in? I think so. I mean, first of all, Martha Plimpton and Joaquin Phoenix are seriously good actors and Keanu Reeves, I mean, he's part of that story as well. And I don't think any of the other kids are actors now. So that's kind of interesting. Or if they are, I'm sorry, I've misspoken. But I mean, these people are really famous. And um, really compelling dynamic. I think they have great chemistry like as, as a family unit. And some of my favorite funny moments and some of my favorite serious moments. Um, like, like every time 
Julie is gonna either move out or then move back in and then like Helen announces it to Gary trying to get him to care and he just like leaves the room it's perfect timing it's so great you get a real sense of their family and maybe more than any other family it is messy it does not feel like that their family stuff does not feel like a sitcom to me it feels like real shit and weirdly if i had to name which parent i thought was the best parent it would be helen even over gill who's excellent but i just i just thought man she just tries so fucking hard she's just really putting herself out there and a lot of people would probably judge her because her kids don't look a certain way but i think they're good people anyway what do you think I agree. I found them a really touching and compelling for sure. Also, maybe embodied the tone of the movie the best. I mean, this blend of comedy and I feel like Roger Ebert, he didn't even mention drama. He mentioned balancing actors between comedy and truth. That is what I really felt like all the Helen stories embodied so well. In particular, you know, they have this big fight after Helen discovers. Well, Todd suggests. Ooh, wait. What? I brought something. Ooh, good. We can record our love. <laughs> and, you know, now we think record our love, like make a sex tape. He's literally holding a camera and they have to go, <laughs> go get the film developed on 1989. <laughs> but so then when Helen mistakenly picks up those photos and sees that they were taking like these nude photos in her house, they have a big fight. This is your room. You did these things right here in my house? Well, I thought someone in this house ought to be having sex. I mean, with something that doesn't require batteries. What did you say to me? God damn it, you get back here! Open this door, God damn it to hell! I would just like a little respect. Not a lot, just a little. Do you know why I'm having sex with machinery? Because your father left to have a party and I stayed to raise two kids. And I have no life! And that I just feel like is such a great example of mixing the comedy with something so real. Her offense and her anger at her daughter is so understandable and feels so authentic. But then she has these lines like, I just want a little respect. Not a lot, just a little. Yeah. And um, you know why I have sex with machinery? Because I have no life. (laughs) It's just so funny. But it's rooted in something so real and something really not funny. And I thought, man, that they can all pull that off from the writers to the director to Diane Wiest. It's just incredible, I think. I really wish we had more comedy like that now because it does all feel so high concept now. You know, everything is bigger, bigger, bigger. And we've kind of talked about that a little bit. But yeah, I mean, in real life, the things that make us laugh are the little ridiculous things we say in the middle of a fight or, you know, like like it is kind of like the comedy happens while we're doing other things, you know, while you're busy making other plans. And so I don't know. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that was what made all the humor feel so real and earned. Especially, yeah, that Roger Ebert comment about 
comedy and truth. God, that's fascinating. This idea that a silly, you know, family comedy from 1989 is concerned with finding truth. And I think it is. Yeah. Well, not to jump around too crazily, but I feel like what we're discussing reminds me so much of a little line I loved later on in the movie when Karen discovers that she's pregnant. You really have to go? My whole life is have to. And I, that hit me so hard. And it just seemed like, you know, as we said, neither of us have children, but both of my sisters do. And that's probably the most up close look I've gotten at parenting. And I thought, boy, that really seems to be what parenting is all about. Your whole life becomes have to. It doesn't matter if you want to, if, if you don't want to coach your kids little league team, if you don't want to take the promotion at the job you hate, you have to because you've got people who are more important than you. And I think it's something, it's the biggest temptation I have to not have children yeah. is, is a kind of selfishness, at least a selfishness for my whole life not being controlled by have to. Well, I mean, that's probably a major reason why my husband and I decided not to have kids, you know, um, which really shocked people, I think, because, you know, we live in Kansas in the Midwest, it is really just what people do, especially when we still lived in our hometown. It, it was really almost unheard of for people like us to be in a good marriage, good relationship, and just want our lives to be about something else. I, I have an aunt who, who has called it selfish, you know, and I, I think that is a Selfish to not have children. To not have children, yeah. She uh, sent us letters before telling us we should change our minds, that that we are doing something selfish by making our lives just about us. And um, it's kind of interesting because it seems like that is often the way it's looked at because, you know, in this, this movie, four siblings, all of them have children. And often it just seems like, well, that's what you do, right? You grow up. You, you find someone, you, you have kids. It's interesting um, how rare it is, I think, to decide something else. On the one hand, I am sure that having children is so satisfying in ways I'm, that I can't comprehend, you know? Um, although I, I do bristle when people say things like, you don't know true love until you look at, you know, the eyes of your baby. I'm like, I, I feel like I know love, but okay. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I don't know, as wonderful as it must be, it also must be exhausting and, and yeah, about have to. And I feel like we don't really talk about that enough. And, and, you know, social media and Pinterest, people have all this pressure not just to be a parent, but to be like the perfect ideal parent. How lonely must that be sometimes and how overwhelming and how, you know, and, and I feel like you're supposed to just swallow it down and, and talk about what a miracle it is, you know, and, and talk about how happy you are constantly. And that, that just seems really unfair. And so I didn't think that uh, Gil was being a jerk in that moment. I mean, maybe a little bit of a jerk, but but understandably, you know, and that's a truth, too. It's not the overwhelming truth of who he is. It's, you know, it, it's it's a little maybe out of character, but it's also a part of who he is, even though largely he's like an incredible person and parent and spouse. I think it's interesting that you mentioned it was an aspect of parenting that isn't talked about a lot, because I did come across an interview with Ron Howard in which he was discussing the inspiration for this film. Bryce was about mm, 
four years old and we had our twins, Jocelyn and Paige, were, were only about seven months old. So Bryce was maybe four and a half. And she was gonna sit next to me on this 17-hour flight. And uh, so they had this little vegetarian sushi um, dish. And, and uh, I said, you wanna try a sushi? There's no fish in it, it's just vegetarian. She said, okay. And she tried it and within the first 40 minutes of the flight, she projectile vomited all over my shirt and I had no change. So I was just like, oh God. And the babies were crying and I was helping Cheryl and we were just walking them and driving the crew crazy and we got landed and we got all 24 pieces of luggage and I was pulling luggage off the carousel, just sweating like a pig, you know? I was like, how old was I, 32, 33 years old? I was just like an old man, just suffering. And I just thought, nobody told me. Why wouldn't anybody tell me what this was like? I was feeling so sorry for myself. And I realized, oh, that's funny. <laughs> Why does no one tell you that this is what parenting is gonna be? <laughs> yeah. And that's what apparently sparked the inspiration for the movie. And I thought, well, the movie certainly does show that side of it. And I think in showing that side, it both makes it less sentimental than a movie about parenthood might be and more moving because then when those moments do come where something really just heartwarming hits you, it hits so much harder and deeper. No, absolutely. You know, when Kevin asks if he can work where Gil works so that they can be together every day. Oh, Ugh. so sweet. And so much sweeter because Kevin has often been a sort of pain throughout yeah. a lot of the rest of the movie. Absolutely. You know, the scene that makes me think of that is um, at the end when Gary um, tells his mom that, you know, he's glad she's dating his teacher because he seems like the kind of guy who'd be nice to her. That would be a sweet thing to say no matter what. But given that earlier in the film he wanted to go live with his dad, he, he can't seem to really talk to his mom about almost anything. This is one of the first real conversations we see them have. That really hit. I was just like, that is beautiful. Yeah. That scene where Gary asks to live with his dad, oh. I think is so heartbreaking. And like you said already, the actors in that family are giving such great performances. And in that scene in particular, I thought it was such an interesting idea. He says he's going to call his father at work. And you can see that Helen thinks that's a terrible idea and yeah. that he is setting himself up to get hurt. But she doesn't really try to stop him at all. I think she sort of instantly knows I can't stop him. Yeah. He'll he'll be mad at me then, and rightly so, for preventing him from asking his father that question. A question he has every right to ask him. Yeah. But then that means she has to just sit there and watch him get crushed, which is exactly what happens. That felt like a real insight. The idea of letting your kids make their own mistakes. It means watching your kids get hurt when you you might be able to spare them, but then they won't really have learned for themselves. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, not that it should be a competition, and I think that Helen and Gil are both excellent parents in their own way, but I think that's really why Helen as a parent I found maybe more compelling because it felt like maybe because her kids were older, she had learned that lesson that, you know, you can't control them so much and you can't 
really manufacture happiness for them. Uh, the way that, you know, Gil keeps trying to like solve Kevin's emotional problems, right? He keeps trying to be like the hero of his son's story, which maybe every once in a while he can save the day, you know, but, but he can't do that forever. And so I thought that was like a real marked difference in the way that these two characters approached uh, parenting. Yeah. I was also going to mention that Helen dating the biology teacher feels like a real parallel to Sarah dating Mark. Although it's her daughter's, (laughs) it's her daughter's English teacher, not her son's biology teacher. And both are very nice. Both, both treat her very nicely. um, But one's a little bit cuter. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. (laughs) Oh, Well, back to the idea of parallels. So we did the two oldest children. The other two, Susan, I suppose, is the parallel of Julia. And then Nathan would be Joel. That's the worst parallel. And their daughter, Patty, (laughs) would be Sydney. And there are some parallels, but this feels like maybe the most changed. In the movie, they are obsessed with making their daughter smart or capitalizing on her natural intelligence That storyline was often quite funny, but I think to me it felt like the least realistic. And not even that the storyline was unrealistic, but it was played very broadly, very much for laughs. Yes, it went to pretty ridiculous extremes, like her knowing the square root of 8,000 something and, you know, and then... (laughs) And then uh, Gil's youngest son, Justin, just like eating the dots off of that game. Like, you know, like just I, I did like the running joke that that Patty is like the smartest child in the world and Justin's a moron. Like, I did think that was really fun. But yeah, you're right. It was it was very broad, you know, but it's weird because Joel on the show is such a realistic character, but he's a lot harder to define than Nathan in the movie, you know, Rick Moranis. Like, like if you were to ask me, well, what's what's Nathan's situation? I feel like, oh, I can tell you. He's a dick. He's pretentious. <laughs> you know, um, he's self-righteous. I've got all these words. I guess none of them are good. Joel, it's a little trickier. You know, good words like supportive and, um, you know, encouraging, loving. But he's a little bit blander, I guess. And, uh, you know, that's interesting that they went more of a blank slate route with him for the show. They're just like, well, let's just cast this more conventionally handsome actor and, and the, you know, and we don't quite know what to make of him, I I feel like. I don't know. Yeah, well, at first, they both seem very invested in educating their daughter in this very rigorous way. But then pretty quickly, it's revealed that Susan is way less invested than Nathan, and she thinks that they're going a little too far. And at first, as I was watching it, I thought these characters have such fundamentally different philosophies about how to raise their child that I I almost didn't believe them as a couple. I thought, yeah. why are these people even together? And then I was at least not gratified, <laughs> but uh, I appreciated then that the movie presented that as an actual marital conflict. You know, she tells Nathan via flashcards <laughs> that she's leaving him for that reason. And then she says, this is the only way I can get your attention. Yeah. And I thought, okay, at least they're owning up to the fact that this is not a cute misunderstanding that they're having. It's a really large, basic difference between them. It's an irreconcilable difference. Yes. Well, I remember there was that moment where Susan 
after a fight with Nathan, where basically he just makes the decision, you know, that they're going to bring their daughter on a family trip to Mexico. And she thought it would just be the two of them. It wasn't a conversation. He just decided. And so her response was to go to her closet where she had junk food and start eating the junk food. And, you know, I've seen TV movies a lot. So I was prepared for her to have an eating disorder. I was glad (laughs) that that's not where that went. Um, But I, I actually thought it was more interesting that it wasn't about an eating disorder. It was more about like her having no control over her own life because she was with this super controlling husband and you get their backstory and that was like part of his appeal in the beginning she said that she was really wild and that he was together and he helped her get her shit together and i thought that part of the storyline was really interesting and very believable that what might make you drawn to a, a, a romantic partner in the beginning could go too far like you know like it could be the thing that like eventually turns you off you know like i don't know i thought that was really interesting and how things can get amplified it's like that old adage any virtue carried to an extreme becomes a vice yes exactly exactly and at first i wasn't sure if i wanted them to stay together you know part of me was like yeah just leave him actually all of me was saying that i was like i don't understand why you're with him at all and i still don't know how i feel about that ultimately after his grand gesture and everything. But I don't know. I guess at least he seemed to understand maybe that he had gone too far. And, you know, he was saying things like he would work on compromise. I don't know if I believe him, but what did you think of, like, did should they have ended up together or not? Well, I certainly liked his gesture to get her back. I thought it was very sweet and entertaining to watch. (laughs) And Rick Moranis, I think, is such an endearing presence on screen that he sells it without selling it in a really great way. (laughs) So in that sense, I was glad that they were back together because I didn't want them to split up just because they were each likable in a way. I think what bothered me the most about the conflict there is that there wasn't actually much nuance to it. Mm. And it's not like, well, each side has a point. It was really more like, no, she has a point and he's wrong. (laughs) And so then the solution or the resolution is just he needs to wake up and change his ways. And then it seems like he does do that. I hope he does. But there wasn't a lot of surprise there Mm. or a lot of shades of gray, which I feel like certainly in Helen's story, there it's just her circumstances are what is causing all the conflict. It's not that anyone, any one specific person needs to alter their behavior. It's that they all need to just navigate life and its messiness together. And then Gil as well. He's not a bad parent. Karen's not a bad mother. None of their kids are bad. It's just hard. Yeah. Their problem seems so much more pedestrian. Oh, he's acting crazy. Stop acting crazy. The (laughs) end. Especially since, well, okay, so maybe this is the one time in this movie where maybe truth is sacrificed for comedy because really, I think that could have been a fascinating storyline if it hadn't been so broad because there's probably some truth to the fact that when you're raising a kid, to what extent do you push them and to what extent do you let them just be kids? Obviously, I, I don't have kids, so I, I don't know. But, you know, I, I see my friends struggling with that, you know, trying to decide like, oh, should like we be doing languages together, you know, since their minds are little sponges right now? Should I be, you know, doing more for them? Oh, is it bad that I'm letting them watch TV so I can get a little break? You know, is it bad? 
mad that we're at a restaurant and and I'm just going to pop up my phone and let them watch videos because I'm so tired. That sort of thing is really interesting to me. Um, but this, yeah, was so extreme that it was hard to take it very seriously. And I think there is a little pearl of truth within this story, but that they really only kind of allude to, which is, I think, the idea of the job of parenting is so immense that it might overwhelm the job of being a spouse. Oh, yeah. I think that Nathan is maybe blinded by his responsibility to their child, which is very admirable that he yeah. wants, you know, he wants her to be smart. But in doing so, he's completely neglecting his responsibilities to Susan as a husband and not seeing her and sort of losing that spark that brought them together in the first place. But aside from a few times when Susan is, you know, like, complaining to Karen about it, I feel like they don't really play up that aspect of it. It's more, wow, look how wacky Nathan is. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, it would be a great opportunity to get into the guilt of parenting, which maybe they don't need to because I think Gil's storyline delves into that a lot, like feeling responsible for everything bad that ever happens to your kid, you know, like, like feeling like, oh, this is my fault. I couldn't save them, protect them. Um, but you know, it, it, yeah, again, it does feel like parents have this real responsibility, not just to keep their kid alive and, you know, functioning, but, you know, to make them the best possible citizen that they can. And, you know, it, it is, again, just played for laughs and there's so much there. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting, maybe missed opportunity, but who am I to complain? It was, you know, such a good movie. I'm, I'm being nitpicky, I guess. I do think the alterations that they made for those characters on the TV show were very interesting because it feels like it retains sort of the essence yeah. of that family while really being its own thing. So instead of being obsessed with making their daughter smart, it is revealed pretty early on that their daughter is gifted, that she's yeah. incredibly smart, but it's something that they're actually kind of concerned about. You know, how do we keep her intellectually engaged without, in a roundabout way, labeling her as a freak? Yeah. And the obsessiveness of making her smarter is kind of replaced with Julia's obsessiveness with her job and how much her work requires of her. And then they add in this other element of a stay-at-home dad yeah. And what does that do between the spouses, which I think kind of plays up that sense of parents losing sight of their responsibilities to their spouse. Yeah. You know, you saying that made me realize, do we know if Nathan has a job or not? Because, you know, Joel is obviously a stay-at-home dad in the show. Nathan does seem to have all this time to devote to, you know, his his uh, studies with Patty, you know, his flashcards and <laughs> doing karate or martial arts, you know, like all kinds of things with her. And I was like, I, I can't remember if he has a job or not. I think he's a scientist because he, oh. he pioneered a shrinking technology. Oh, <laughs> Wait, I can see him being a scientist. Ah, there it um, is. No, I think you're right. I'm, I'm not sure that it, if it ever says or not. Because Susan's like, I, I'm teaching summer school. That means we have vacation money. You know, it makes me wonder, is she the only one with a job? He helped her get her shit together so that she could just be the breadwinner. <laughs> That's right. interesting. I did bump on that a little when you mentioned like the trip to Mexico. And I said, a trip they're only able to take because she's taking on extra work. And yes. he just invites their daughter along. 
Yeah. It is interesting, though, speaking of stay-at-home dads, Rick Moranis, who plays that part, quite famously sort of abandoned his career to be a stay-at-home dad. His wife died from cancer in 1991, uh, and he had two small children, and he took a very long break from acting, which he hasn't even quite resumed yet, at least on camera. He's done a lot of voiceover work, and he's done a lot of music work as a songwriter and performer, but uh, not a lot of film work. I think that's really interesting real life aspect of it. I have a few clips from an interview he did on the subject. Stuff happens to people every day and they make adjustments in their lives um, for all kinds of reasons. And um, there was nothing unusual about um, what happened or, or what I did. Um, I think the reason that people were intrigued by the decisions I was making and sometimes seemed to have almost admiration for it had less to do with the fact that I was doing what I was doing and more to do with what they thought I was walking away from, as if what I was walking away from had far greater value than anything else that one might. The decision in my case to become a stay-at-home dad, which people do all the time, um, I guess wouldn't have meant as much to people if I had had a very simple kind of make-a-living existence and decided, you know what, I need to spend more time at home. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this part-time and then work out of my house to do this and this and this. Nobody would pay any attention to it. But because I came from celebrity and fame and what and what was a peak of a career, that was intriguing to people. And to me, it wasn't that. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was just work, and it was time to make an adjustment. I think that's a very fascinating point. And I think he's probably dead on. Oh, yeah. Parents often leave their jobs in order to stay home with their children. And I think he's right that people assume, well, show business, if you get to be, you know, leads in movies, why would you ever give that up? I don't think that people were asking Joel quite the same questions about leaving construction. Right. (laughs) Oh, that's really, yeah, really interesting. Well, when I was listening to Rick Moranis and I didn't know that story, by the way, so I'm so glad you brought that up. Oh. I think that's fascinating. I, I always just was like, whatever happened to him? So now I know, and that's makes me admire him even more. You know, I was listening to him, and I also wondered, maybe some of that has to do with him being a man, too. Although, if a woman left show business at the peak of her career, she might get the same kind of blowback, you know, if it had been Julia Roberts or something, you know, really major. But I feel like... You know, if at any point Jennifer Aniston had had all those babies that the world was pressuring her to have, and then she took a hiatus to stay with those babies, I feel like the world might have been like, good, that's what you should be doing. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I do think that that's kind of interesting, too, that there's that element as well, that maybe we just don't expect the man to make that sort of decision. Like, well, get a nanny. You know, you're an actor. Like, but But you bring up a good point that... Um, on, on the series, people don't seem to question why Julia is the one working when she obviously could make so much more money. But maybe that's the difference of a few decades. I don't know. That could be too. Well, and you know, when you mentioned the peak of a career, it should be noted, Rick Moranis really was at his peak. Uh, 1989 is the year that this movie came out. And that was a good year for him. In that year, he was in Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Parenthood. Wow. Yeah. So it was he was uh, quite successful 
Uh, that yeah. was also a big year for Keanu Reeves, in addition to Parenthood. That was the year that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure came out, <laughs> which I think of, you know, it's hardly his first film role and not, not even his first big film role, but it does feel like that was kind of his breakout role. Yeah. Until Speed, which I feel like was even another level. And that was only five years later. Wow. Which I think is um, amazing. He seems like such a child in this movie. I know he does. Well, and it's funny because a lot of the like Keanu Reeves isms that he's so famous for, like he never actually says, whoa, in parenthood. But you know, like that line you cut earlier, we can record our love. Like, I'm like, you must be doing this on purpose, right? Or are you not? Is this just how you talk? And so that's how your characters talk. I mean, he is in um, the Kenneth Branagh adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing, um, which I've seen so many times because I show it to my students. And he is, I think, unintentionally hilarious. I should say that I love Keanu Reeves. Like, I think he's got heart and I, I think he seems like the best person. So I'm a real fan. But I do think sometimes his delivery is maybe <laughs> funnier than intended, which works for parenthood. Doesn't really work for Much Ado About Nothing. Um, <laughs> And uh, I don't know. I, I just noticed some of that California surfer coming out in his Shakespearean as well. So it's 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 an interesting thing. But I, I loved him. I did notice it throughout the movie. It seemed like he was doing that kind of burnout shtick, but like finding profundity within it. Yes. I'm sure he didn't invent that. I, I'm sure someone who knows more about <laughs> about this area than I do could tell me, oh, no, 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 there, here are these other characters like that. But to me, it kind of, watching this movie, it kind of felt like it comes so naturally to him that it was like, oh, this is who people are imitating when they do that. Yeah, They're absolutely. imitating Keanu Reeves in Parenthood. He has this great scene with Helen. Gary was happy? Yeah, he even smiled. <laughs> I never even knew he had teeth. <laughs> I guess a boy Gary's age really needs a man around. Yeah. Well, mm. depends on the man. I had a man around. He used to wake me up in the morning by flicking lit cigarettes at my head. Hey, asshole, get up and make me breakfast. You know, Miss Buckman, you need a license to buy a dog or drive a car. Hell, you need a license to catch a fish. Don't let any butt-reaming asshole be a father. Well, I'm gonna pick up Julie. And he's so great. I, I included that line at the beginning just because I thought, I didn't even know he had teeth. It was such a <laughs> funny line. And such I thought that was such a good example of like, yeah, that's a sitcom writer who just can't resist. Hey, I got a clever joke. But to me, I'm like, bring it on. I love clever jokes. Yeah, it's it's sweet. You know what's weird is that it, that speech is the part of the movie I remember the best. Um, although in my memory, he said, they'll let any asshole prick be a father. So I remembered that line incorrectly. Um, but reaming asshole, Melissa. <laughs> That line has not aged well. Neither has the line when Rick Moranis is talking about Oriental culture. Um, like his, I'm like, 
no oriental rug um but not okay but um anyway yeah i really remembered that scene like the license to catch a fish or to get a dog like i feel like that has gone through my head sometimes at moments when i think about I don't know, sad situations with like my students, um, you, you know, just not having ideal family situations, things like that. And I just think, wow, yeah, they'll let anybody be a parent, you know? Well, and maybe I thought of that speech out of defensiveness for myself when, you know, people act like, you know, I don't know my own mind or like I've made a dumb choice or a choice I'm going to regret. And I think I've made a very purposeful choice and some parents make a purposeful choice, but a lot of people just get pregnant. And that's why their parents, you know, and, and no judgment here, but it is frustrating to be judged when I have made a very, you know, conscientious and well thought out decision. And, and as Keanu says, you know, they'll let anybody be a father. And that doesn't mean that all parents should be parents. I also love at the end of that speech, he's made this kind of accidentally profound point. And then he literally like shakes it off. It goes, <laughs> well, as if he was just possessed by something. It was yeah. really so well done. And it, it, it just walks right up to the line of being too broad yeah. to be believable. But I feel like he totally plays it on the side of believable. It's like, yeah, Todd would just stumble onto this and then think, what did I just say? <laughs> He's so likable, which helps that whole storyline so much. Diane Weist is obviously so frustrated. And of course she, she always is. calls him that Todd. That Todd. Yeah. And, and, you know, she can see them making pretty terrible decisions that they very well might regret, you know, um, just getting married while Julie's still in high school and then getting pregnant, you know, when she's that young. This is not good idea, but they're just so winning and they you really do believe that they love each other and you kind of just go with it. And, you know, even she gets swept away in it and that scene kind of teaches her there's more to that Todd than she thought. And yeah, I thought it was really lovely. Well, rounding out the Buckman clan, why do you think, do you have any ideas as to why they switched Buckman to Braverman? I really don't. No, do you have any idea? The only thing I could think of was that maybe by the time the show was on, the sitcom Mad About You had been... Oh, yeah. Uh, the characters were called Buckman. That started in 1992. So it would have been after Parenthood, the film. Mad About You comes on the air and runs for, was it seven seasons? That was my guess. So that was the only thing I could think of is that maybe like, let's not name it after another sitcom family. Another part of me thinks, really? Mad About You is the whole reason they, <laughs> they got rid of the name? Maybe they just liked Braverman more. I mean, they changed and updated all the other names, um, which kind of makes sense because Gil and Helen and Larry, like I think Susan would still work, but you know, the, they all feel about, you know, 20 years older than these characters. Although those names all feel like they would be given to the same children. I'm, I always find it, we've talked about this, how funny it is that you've got all these really normal names and then Crosby, you know, like what, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but there's not really one of those in the, the film character names. So that's, I don't know. It's funny, I was struck watching the movie by how much the setting of the film and the TV show dictates so much else. The film is set in St. Louis in 1989, clearly, 
1989, parents with grown children would have been children of like the 30s or 40s themselves. And their fashion looked of that era, their homes, the technology, like when they were taking stuff out of the oven in Helen's house, Helen's wardrobe. Oh, yeah. Like the power, you know, with the shoulder pads. And I'm like, oh, this is different from Sarah. Yes. But it also, it just felt like, oh, that's the late 80s and middle America. Yeah. When you're in the Bay Area in 2010, then those parents of grown children would have grown up in the 50s and 60s. And that determines how they act, how they dress, what kind of house they live in, everything. I thought, oh, that changes a lot. And maybe Gil, Helen, Larry are much more middle America, mid-century names than like... San Francisco area kids in the 70s. Right. Yeah, you might name, although then it's like, why don't they all have names like Crosby? Yeah. Adam and Sarah are downright traditional. Yeah, I absolutely noticed it was um, St. Louis right away because I was watching with my husband and Mark was like, oh, that's Bush Stadium, like the opening scene, you know, I'm like, oh, I guess this is St. Louis. And then later, um, Susan was wearing a Missouri Tigers shirt. And, um, you know, Mark was like, what's up with her shirt? Oh, right. This is St. Louis, because those are not our teams, you know, (laughs) being in Kansas, (laughs) we're the Royals and, you know, the Jayhawks. So it was kind of fun. I did notice, though, in looking things up about the movie, it was shot in Florida, in and around Orlando. And here and there, like in the in Kevin's birthday party, when Gil rides away on the horse, you can see some very tropical looking trees down the block. I'm like, <laughs> that's not Missouri. No. <laughs> and and then I also found online someone mentioning that the photo booth where they pick up the photos is in front of a Publix supermarket, which is not to be found in Missouri. It's only south, southeast. Huh. So anyway, <laughs> for anyone who finds that interesting... I do because, you know, part of me is like, why not just set it in Florida? You know, like I'm I'm being too simple because I don't work in the entertainment biz, you know. So I'm like, well, probably all the reasons you said before made sense for it to be like a Midwestern story. Um, So that's why they wanted to set it there and uh, probably much more difficult to film in Missouri. So but a bum there's there's your answer. But, you know, part of me is like, wouldn't it just be easier if you. (laughs) If you called it Florida, that you know, that's that's too simplified. It does make me wonder too why they changed it to California for the series. Just much cooler, probably. Uh, maybe. <laughs> or my assumption is that then if they have to do any like exterior or location shooting, they don't have to try and replicate. Like I always thought when we would watch Gilmore Girls oh. and it's snowing, and that's such a big deal on the show when it's snowing. And I thought, well, set in Connecticut, it has to snow sometime. And they spend so much of this series walking around town. Yeah. And I thought, that's in Burbank, California. It doesn't (laughs) snow there. So anytime you're seeing snow, I'm like, that must be a huge operation to make it look real. And maybe on Parenthood, they just thought, let's set it somewhere where it doesn't snow. So if we're ever (laughs) outside, we can just go outside. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because on Gilmore Girls 2, sometimes you could see the like Hollywood Hills in the background, (laughs) which is fine. I still love it so much. I don't, I find I don't care too much about those sorts of details. If the, if the storylines feel authentic and real and shoot, that's all I care about. Yeah. 
All right, now to the youngest child of the Buckman family, which is Larry, who's clearly the Crosby parallel, and his son, Cool, <laughs> who, who is the Jabbar parallel. He feels largely similar, although Larry feels like much more of a screw-up. Yes. Well, maybe he feels less like a screw-up and more like someone who really has a giant problem. Yeah. No, that's, that's it. <laughs> Whereas Crosby is just a little doesn't have his shit together. Larry's like in way over his head about to be killed. Yeah. Well, and I think for me, the major um, yeah difference was that Larry, I don't think is a good person. And Crosby, I think is a wonderful person, you know, like troubled and makes poor decisions sometimes. Yes. But I think really good heart. And I think you can kind of tell that just the Braverman's the, the siblings and the parents so much closer in many ways uh, than the Buckmans. I mean, I guess the older three siblings are close to each other and their spouses, but like Larry has one scene, I think, with his siblings. And then the rest of his scenes are with his, you know, dad mostly. And I think that's really interesting that there's none of that camaraderie. He's he's really on the outside. You know, one of Gil's kids says, like, who's that? Um, when he, you know, he's never met Larry before. So, I, you know, that that's a really interesting difference. Yeah, he's clearly been away a while because when yeah. he's he sees everyone again, he says, My God, Susan, you look great. Mm. And you weren't my sister. <laughs> <laughs> No one looked troubled enough by that line, I thought. <laughs> she was like, no. Nah. What's also crazy to me about that line, when he laughs, he sounds so much like Quasimodo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which he was the voice of that character. Oh, I don't think but, I So that. I have him largely in my mind as this beloved Disney character. <laughs> but if you see him with the jacket and everything, you know, he's a very good actor. So I'm I'm able to block that out. But then you just hear the laugh and I'm like, Quasimodo, why are you hitting on your sister? <laughs> That's fantastic. It kept bugging me where I'd seen that actor. And it's stranger than fiction with with uh, Will Ferrell. He plays his like real hippie boss. And it's just in one scene, but he's so memorable. He's really funny in that scene. But he looks like a completely different person now because that's what 30 years will do. Yeah. He was also notably in Amadeus. He played Mozart oh, yeah. in yeah. Amadeus. He was in Animal House. Um, but he kind of like Rick Moranis, although not not the same. He retired from acting as well. Doesn't huh. act anymore. He's a producer. Wow. You know, he Good produces lots of stuff on Broadway. and I didn't know anything about him. This is so interesting. I was in a room with him once. I'm a musician, and I work in theater mostly. And he was sitting in for a show on which he was producer. And he was there for one of the auditions. And I, being a huge fan of Hunchback of Notre Dame and Amadeus... I was like, I can't believe that's Tom Hulse. Oh, that's so cool. But I don't think I said anything to him. <laughs> You're always so nice when you meet famous people. You well, like, we're all there to space. work, you know. To... <laughs> I thought, cool. so Cool's mom in the movie. Very different from Jasmine. Well, we don't ever meet her, right? But her backstory is so different. Although slightly related that she's a showgirl and Jasmine is a dancer, but Jasmine is an actual dancer. She's a ballet, <laughs> highly ballet trained, yeah. classy dancer, artistic. 
Yeah. And then we actually meet her and she's a big part of the story. What you were saying before I got sidetracked um, was so true about, I don't think Larry is a good person. And it seems like him discovering that he has a child hasn't changed him in any way. Yeah. Whereas I think with Crosby, it is a real call to get his life together. Yeah. And he really steps up. And yeah, he stumbles along the way here and there, but Larry doesn't seem to step up in any way. I mean, at the end of the movie, when he's laying out plans to abandon all of his responsibilities, his son is literally an afterthought. Oh, wait, what'll I do with cool? And then Frank just, I'll take him. And he puts up no fight. It was heartbreaking. It really is. And we don't get to know cool really in any way the way that we do with Jabbar. I have to say, I wonder... Like, I don't want to sound um, harsh or anything, but it seemed like maybe in the film, just the fact that Cool is black was meant to be shocking or provocative in a way that I don't think it really is 20 years later in the series. You know, I mean, it's it's surprising that Crosby has a son, but I don't know that it's like, and he's black, like, which I feel like is kind of played in the movie for a, a beat, you know, yeah. like what? Yeah, and maybe I'm overreacting because in the very next scene, Larry's mom is like, oh, he's so precious. I love him, you know? And so it's not like he actually experiences any real racism or anything like that, but it, it is, I think, meant to be a bit provocative uh, and it adds to the story and maybe makes the fact that like, what was the backstory on Cool's mom that she's in jail now? Like makes that maybe a little more problematic, you know, like <laughs> the only black characters in the movie. <laughs> but anyway. I think Larry provides a lot of the conflict between that sort of middle generation and then older generation, because they really drive home the point that Frank is still the parent, even though his kids are grown. And Larry seems to be the clearest example of that because he's most obviously in need of some help. Yeah. And there's that great scene in the garage. Here's another parallel. Frank restores old cars. Yeah. And Zeke restores old cars as well. That's like their only similarity. We should talk about that later. (laughs) Yeah. But... Larry's asking for help, not emotional help, but just money. And Frank says, did you ever think about getting a job? What did you always tell me, huh? Make your mark. Make your mark. Don't be one of the numbers. Make your mark. You misunderstood me. You weren't listening. Oh, come on. If I called you up to tell you, hey, Dad, I'm the new assistant sub-vice president of pencil sharpening at some crappy little company, you're telling me you think that was great? I am better than that. I am not Gil. And then also you get this great shot that just lingers on Jason Robard's face. And he sort of looks back at him and without any words, what I perceived him to be to be saying was, no, you're not. Yeah. What I found so interesting about that I'm not Gil line is like he obviously thinks he's too good for just like decent hard work, you know, that he's supposed to be doing something like fantastic with his life. And, and it seems like his father has always kind of shared that opinion, you know, that maybe Gil is a bit of a wuss because he's just a hardworking family man. He doesn't have gumption. He's not, you know, I mean, 
I'll just kind of say it now, you know, Frank is an asshole in a way that that Zeke isn't, you know, I, I think um, Zeke has his problems. But I mean, the way that there's Frank and his wife do not love each other. At least he doesn't. He treats her so horribly through the whole movie. It's very subtle, but it's persistent. I don't think he says one nice thing to her. And, you know, it seems like his idea of what a man is really is you know it, it feels like larry really bought into that growing up like this okay my dad this is what being a man is like and gil we we find out in that very opening scene where it's like a little kid that he and, you know and he says that he spent his whole life wanting to be as different from his father as possible that's the whole reason gil's a good dad is because he did basically the opposite of what his own father did that's so interesting because now it's like Frank has to acknowledge that he's a shitty person because the kid who followed in his footsteps is the shittiest of the kids. I don't know. I found that really super interesting. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that you say Frank is so different from Zeke because he is in most ways. You know, I think there's no doubt that Zeke is really kind of a doting father in his way, in his very particular way, but it's evident that his whole life kind of revolves around his family and that that was his goal and he yeah. achieved it. So that feels very different from Frank where it does seem like he just did it because that's what you do and that's what a man does. He has kids and a wife and he provides. And But I feel like there were also a fair amount of similarities. You know, I wrote down that the dynamic between Frank, Gill, and Kevin feels very reminiscent that of is true. Zeke, Adam, and Max because both Zeke and Frank have an attitude that Adam or Gill are just being too soft. Yes. Oh, come on, just tell a kid to shape up. And, you know, Adam does say at one point, I think it's when Zeke tells him he's a good father. And he says, you know, that's really rich coming from you because I'm just trying not to be like you. Yeah. Well, and it feels to me like like Zeke is, yeah, like not completely the opposite of Frank or anything like that, but a much more nuanced version. You know, like he and Camille do have marital problems. It becomes a big storyline. And, you know, he isn't as sensitive to her as he should be. But the, the film portrayal of the grandparents, you know, it was almost cartoonish in that he was just barking at her constantly and she was real submissive. Like, I don't even remember her character's name. I wrote it down somewhere, but, you know, she would suggest something very meekly and then he would bark at her. I even remember, like, when the lights go out at the beginning of the movie Frank says to her because she'd been the one who was talking like your voice caused this like you you were and that's funny but in context with every other cruel thing he says to her I just really felt bad for her I'm like there's no layers to this marriage he is just a jerk that's it and maybe I mean I feel like the softest we ever see him is at the end of the film when Cool asks if, if his father's ever coming back, and he says no, which I loved. Like, he's no idiot. He knows exactly what's going on with Larry. But I, you know, and then he asks him if he wants to stay with them, and it's a really kind of tender moment. And I'm like, okay, this feels like layers. Like, maybe this is his shot of being a more Gill-like father. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so much there I want to react to. I feel like you said so much. <laughs> First of all, I pulled that blackout scene but for a slightly different reason. Let me, <laughs> let, let me play it. Oh, oh gee. What happened? Your mouth used up all the power. Oh. Don't worry, Dad. We can still find the bar. Daddy, I'll get a flashlight. I'll get it, sis. Where is it? In the bedroom? In the night one out. I'm getting a flashlight. Kevin! Oh, good, okay. Kevin! 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 Kevin!
is a blackout. It's a temporary interruption in the electrical supply of the home. It's okay, honey. Something's busted. Where's the switch? That doesn't look like my house. Here, bring it here. Oh, here it is. What is this? an electric ear cleaner. It was kind of big. It sure was. <laughs> <laughs> that made me think of, you know, the series Parenthood is really well known for having a very improvisatory feel with the dialogue. And there's often these big scenes, big dinner scenes usually, where characters are overlapping, talking over each other. And that was an example I thought that really felt like kind of a prototype of what the show often was. It just felt like, oh, I found a fossil that then led to the series that we know. Oh, that's such a good point. I didn't even think of that scene that way. And you're totally right. And I love how every character's comment feels very much like something they would say, but it also really helps explain, like, because it's early on in the film, it also, like, kind of helps give that um, context for the viewers. Like, this is who everybody is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was the next thing you were talking about? Oh, maybe Frank's layers at mm. the end of the movie, when you're yeah. kind of seeing more of him there. Obviously, his great scene with Gil. You know, when you were two years old, we thought you had polio. You know about that? Yeah, Mom once said something. Yeah, well, for a week, we didn't know. I hated you for that. What? I did. I did. I, I, I hated having to go through that. Caring. Worrying. Pain. It's not for me. And you know, it's not like that all ends when you're 18 or 21 or 41 or 61. It never, never ends. It's like your Aunt Edna's ass. It goes on forever and it's just as frightening. It's true. There is no end zone. You never cross the goal line, spike the ball and do your touchdown. Never. I'm 64. Larry, 27. And he's still my son. Like Kevin is your son. You think I want him to get hurt? He's my son. I think it's such a beautiful scene and a beautiful speech and a beautiful performance from Jason Robards. I liked how well it highlight, highlighted that generational aspect. The idea that no matter how old you get, you still feel the same love and protectiveness for your child. I remember when my sisters had kids and I got to see them you know, from the time they were brand new and it made me think of my mom, whenever I'm traveling, she always asks that I just text her when we're taking off and when we land. And she just likes to know. And she's, she's like, I don't want to be a pain about it, but just, just drop me a quick text. 
And so I do. And I always kind of did it rolling my eyes, thinking, oh, good grief. What's the point of this? But if it makes her happy. And then once I saw my sister's kids, I had kind of the same realization of like, I was once this small. And the love that I could feel between my sisters and their children, I'm like, oh, that's what my mom felt for me and feels for me still just as much and she's still just as protective even though i'm an adult and in a lot of ways can take care of my stuff myself she still wants me to be safe and happy and so i thought yeah i can text her that's not asking too much well and you know i think it becomes really interesting because parents as their kids become adults they lose control over their kids and that's healthy and normal and and that's how it should be but it must be very hard to lose control over something that you know when their kids were small they were the ones in charge they had the control now their kids are going off having their own families and I don't know I feel like a lot of that is a battle for control almost you know like my my mom would want me to do the same thing and and wants to make sure I'm I'm safe and yeah sometimes I also feel a little resentful of that because I interpret that as her not recognizing my autonomy or that I'm an adult and it's really not how she means it so and that I think it's a natural assumption assumption especially for a young person without children to think that once the kid is raised you might expect some sense of like ah now I'm done yeah now I can (laughs) wipe off my hands and the job is done and it's like it's not done just like he says yeah. It also called to my mind that scene of Helen and Gary and how Helen had to let him get hurt in yeah. order for him to experience something, learn something on his own. And you could say that that's what Frank has been doing with Larry for a long time. You know, you can't live Larry's life for him. You have to let him make a mess and try and clean it up himself. But where do you draw the line then? The situation that Larry's in now, he thinks he's about to be killed. You know, that's not learning a lesson. That's just losing a child. And then I think that protective instinct would just be impossible to ignore. So it's, yeah, yeah, I'll get you $26,000. I thought that was a really good dilemma, like where I had a lot of trouble deciding what I would have done in that situation, if I would give him the money or not. I think if it was anything other than death, I wouldn't, um, because I, I don't think that that, yeah, helps anyone usually, like cleaning up their messes for them. I also wouldn't have been giving him two or $3,000 every time I saw him the way that Frank did. So not to blame him, I guess, but he did set a real precedent of, of that. But the scene where Frank lays out for Gil, or sorry, for Larry, this is what I'm going to do. This, how about this deal? I was really struck by how perfect that felt to me. I'm like, this is the exact right thing to do. And it was so sad and so telling that Larry didn't take that deal because that was, I was like, that's so good. That's, that's helping him, saving him, but also making sure that he's better set for life with, with Gamblers Anonymous and, and uh, taking over his job. But he just can't have that normal life. I don't know. And it felt obvious that Larry knew just how to play Frank a little bit. Yeah. Because the first thing I, that Larry says is, okay, like that's a very reasonable thing. You make a good point. And then almost immediately, hey, I just got this phone call. 
Yeah. And he launches right into it, and Frank doesn't resist at all. And I, I, what I took away from that was that he just realized he can't save him. Yeah. You mentioned Frank seeing cool as sort of a chance to do it over, to do things right, to fix some of his mistakes that he made with Larry. Gil has a speech earlier in the movie about children starting out perfect and then ending up like you, like their parents. And that made me wonder how many people have kids in an effort to change the things that they hate about themselves. You know, that's so interesting because that was actually kind of what made Mark realize he didn't want to have kids because um, he used to say things when we'd been together just a few years. He would say things like, maybe our kid will go to Europe. You know, like maybe our kid will do this. Maybe our kid will um, get a master's degree. You know, he would just say all these like grand things. And then when we had our first real talk about maybe we don't want to have kids, Mark was like, I want to do those things. I want to go to Europe. I want to get a master's degree. I don't want to just live vicariously through a creation of mine. I just want to do these things myself. And I thought that was really fascinating. And it, I don't know. And and maybe some people think that sounds terrible. But I do know that some people struggle with their own sense of identity after they become parents. You know, um, the idea that they would have a life beyond being a parent does feel selfish or wrong sometimes to them, even though, of course, me over here, I'm like, no, it shouldn't. You absolutely are still a vibrant person and you have to do things for yourself. But You know, so often, you know, um, my friends who are parents, that's what they talk about. And of course they do. And it's, it's what they do with their time. They go to their kids' games and they, you know, it's, it's just, it's a totally different life. So it's really interesting. But yeah, I never even thought about that. Like kids taking on or like, like a chance for a do-over or something. Really interesting. Well, and you mentioned that, mentioning that about Mark makes me think if he did have a child and was living vicariously through him, wouldn't you then just resent that child a little bit when they did go to Europe and when they did get a master's degree? I mean, I think you would mostly be proud and you'd mostly be happy for them. I don't think they would cancel each other out at all, but I would think if the child was a chance at redemption in some larger sense, I feel like there would have to be some little grain of resentment that they're achieving what you couldn't. Yeah, that is so interesting. And that's, again, the stuff that I don't think people really talk about with parenthood. It's it's just how could you, you know, like you probably feel like a real jerk for even thinking it for a second. And so I think maybe that gets shoved down or, or people say, of course, I never think like that. No, I'm just happy for them. But I don't know. Parents are also human, you know, like they, they, ha- they have to have this full range of, of emotions and, and reactions. And it's not always 100 percent perfect, even if they're wonderful parents. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's also just such a, again, two childless people talking about this. <laughs> I think you would constantly be besieged by the pressure of every decision you make regarding them feeling so consequential because yeah. you are you are creating a person to add to the population and you want to do it right. It's something that this movie, again, finding truth in comedy it takes that concern to such an absurd level. But I know one of the scenes both of us really (laughs) loved is when Gil is coaching Kevin in Little League 
And he thinks he's made a really good call. And he has this sort of fantasy of where this great parenting and great coaching of his son is going to lead. Thank you. You know, when I was nine years old, I had kind of a rough time. A lot of people thought I was pretty mixed up. But there was one person who got me through it. He did everything right. And thanks to him, today, well, I'm the happiest, most confident, and most well-adjusted person in this world. Dad, I love you. You're the greatest. Again, so funny, but so rooted in something so real. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then pretty much immediately, (laughs) the kid blows a play, and they lose the game, and he's really upset, and he blames his dad, sending Gil on a completely different fantasy. like such a crazy scene for a 1989 you know 10 years before Columbine kind of scene I wonder if they could I don't think they would attempt that particular depiction of a poor parent now (laughs) like oh the kid's a school shooter I mean I feel like now that's such a real thing that they might not go there but it was really entertaining the two extremes and again rooted in something so real that I think then the kind of outlandish comedy of it hit hard without feeling cheap at all it felt like yeah you would spin out this like I'm gonna screw this kid up like probably not to that degree no (laughs) but that would be the very understandable fear well you know I related to that in a small way you know being a teacher Again, it's not the same as being a parent. I don't think that at all. But I, I do tend to really beat myself up if a lesson doesn't go well. And I do tend to feel euphoric if one goes really well. Like I remember my first couple years of teaching, I would swing wildly before, like between thinking I was an amazing teacher and thinking I was like the worst teacher. I never just thought, I'm fine, which was the real truth of it my first few years. You know, I just was like, woo. And and also it really hits at something like validation being so important, whether you're a parent or not. You know, like you really need, or at least I really need validation sometimes to know that my choices are good, that I'm I'm doing the right things. Sometimes it's hard to just trust that you are. I have a friend who once kind of bemoaned that there are no like parenting awards you know it's hard to you don't get that outside validation very often maybe that's why Gil is like dreaming of his son talking about him at you know at at, uh, graduation because 
you don't get all that many moments probably where you're, I don't know, appreciated publicly or, or given some sort of honor. Like you just do it because you have to. Yeah, have to. Um, I took note of a few other parallels, either similarities or differences. I noticed early on the parents mentioned that they sold the big house. Oh, And yeah. now they're in a much smaller place. And that happens towards the end of the series. The parents realize we don't need this big house anymore. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, good point. Another difference in the film, Helen's ex is not a drug addict who can't take care of his kids. He's a very successful dentist who just won't take care of his kids. And that change to me made her and the children much more sympathetic. And it also felt more timely, a little more socially relevant because it was there was this condition that sort of made the happy family impossible instead of some guy just being a jerk. Yeah. In the movie, it was very easy to just blame him. Uh, on the show, it's very easy to be angry at Seth a lot of the time, but it's much harder to saddle him with all the blame. Yeah. And he didn't go off and have a second family either. Yeah. yeah. And because he's often really trying to be good, he just has some struggles. Yeah. Good point. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Frank and Zeke both restore old cars. Gil coaches Little League, as does Adam. And in both stories, baseball feels like that desperate stab for like normalcy for a kid that they're worried won't fit in. Yeah. Kevin loses his retainer, which is a very teeny tiny part of an episode. Wow. At the end of season one or two? I don't even remember that. I, for like, I forget. Wow. That's it's not great. very consequential, but it was a, a nice little nod, I realize now, yeah. to that. Um, Gil quitting his job and then immediately finding out that his wife is unexpectedly pregnant is exactly the same as the series. And I remember you and I even questioned, like, what's the point of having Christina be pregnant again? And now that we see it happens in the movie, it feels a little less arbitrary to me. Yeah. And... In the movie, he just gets his job back. Yeah. There's no luncheonette. Yeah. It was nice that the film or the series made him have to deal with that a little more rather yeah. than just, oh, grovel and get it back. Oh, another parallel is that you have these three generations and then one matriarch above them all. In the movie, she's grandma is sort of a constant presence. In the series, there is a grandma, but she's only in one episode. But it did feel like, oh, they have the structure exactly the same. Yeah, it was really interesting how much it paralleled. I thought things like Gary asking to live with his father, which is an exact, like basically Julie and Gary mimic the pilot so perfectly, you know, like re rebelling with a boy that you're dating and insisting that this is true love. And, and then the, the son wanting to go live with his dad. I thought that was really interesting. And then of course, yeah, Kevin and Max are a real parallel. My last observation, just because when we were on grandma, she tells this very obviously metaphorical <laughs> story about a roller coaster and it's supposed to be like, oh, this doddering old fuddy-duddy, kind of like Keanu Reeves, spits out this <laughs> great pearl of wisdom. But then I love, like we said before, the movie's humor often serving to cut the sentimentality. She has this great speech, and then she says, you know, I'll meet you in the car. 
And Karen is saying, I love the roller coaster. She, you know, and then Gil's reaction is, yeah, well, if she's so smart, why is she sitting in the neighbor's car? <laughs> and I thought <laughs> it was, it was again, it was, yeah, maybe a little sitcom-y, but it does help keep the whole scene from just being tied up with a bow. Absolutely. Because I wasn't even sure if I liked that metaphor. I was like, okay, it felt a little on the nose, but... After loving the whole rest of the movie so much, I was like, I'll forgive it. I don't know. I was totally yeah. fine with that. And from that character, if you were going to forgive any character for kind of going with the most obvious metaphor, maybe this old woman who, you know, she mentions at one point. And I was born president. <laughs> and I looked up because I thought, how old would that make her? At first, my math was off because I'm like, she's at least 100. <laughs> but I was wrong. <laughs> Grover Cleveland was the 22nd and 24th president. He's, I think, best known for being the only president to serve non-consecutive terms. Those terms were 1885 to 1889 and then 1893 to 1897. Uh, so at the time of the movie, 1989, the character would have to have been at least 92 years old. Wow. Helen Shaw, who played Grandma, was born on July 25th, 1897. Wow. Just four months after Cleveland left office. So, so it's totally possible. Almost true. That is so interesting. I love that you looked that up. That's amazing. She lived to be a hundred. Wow. That's so great. I love that. But she was she was wonderful. I mean, let's talk about the cast. Who oh, I yeah. think are just kind of uniformly excellent. Okay, so a few of my thoughts. I thought the biggest parallel acting-wise was um, Steve Martin and Peter Krause. I, I actually felt like their vibes were incredibly similar. Like, even maybe their voices a little similar. Like, um, Adam is is less obviously funny, you know, because he's not Steve Martin. But they both seemed earnest in the same way to me and like good upstanding people. Like it wasn't just the characters that felt similar to me. It was the performance as well. I agree. Another comment about the acting. This is more of just a story that I've always loved. So when I was 16, I was obsessed with Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. Um, I just loved them. And so the only thing I really knew about Jason Robards was that he was Lauren Bacall's second husband and that lots of people her whole life <laughs> when she was with Jason Robards would say to her, oh, you obviously have a type. He looks so much like Humphrey Bogart. And she would always say, I don't see it. But if you look at Jason Robards and Humphrey, like they look like the same person to me. So that always makes me laugh really hard. So that's really the only thing I know about him. And I think this is the only performance of his I've ever seen. In looking him up, I discovered he's one of, uh, now I forget how many people, but he's won the, the so-called triple crown of acting, which is uh, an Oscar, Emmy, and a Tony. Oh, wow. This is according to Wikipedia. As of June 2018, 24 people have achieved the triple crown of acting, 15 women and nine men. Wow. That's so cool. I had no idea. There are a lot of Oscar winners in this film, either people who were Oscar winners at the time of the film or went on to win Oscars. Steve Martin has an honorary Oscar given to him in 2013 
Diane Wiest has two. Mary Steenbridgen has one. Jason Robards has two. And Joaquin Phoenix has one. Wow. That is so cool. I love that. I Some other little trivia things I found <laughs> about the, the actors. Uh, Tom Hulse is the youngest of four children in real life. Oh, wow. Uh, Martha Plimpton dated River Phoenix, River Phoenix for several years. I knew that. And so it made me think that that was so fun. She must have actually been close uh, to, you know, Joaquin Phoenix playing Leaf. her little brother. Leaf Phoenix. Mary Steenburgen and Jason Robards were both in the movie Melvin and Howard, which is what she won her Oscar for. Oh, I did not know that. And Steve Martin and Rick Moranis were both in Little Shop of Horrors, which was oh, before right. this movie. Keanu Reeves was in My Own Private Idaho with River Phoenix, so he also had a credit with, with Leaf's brother. Huh. Harley Jane Kozak, plays Susan, was the mom in All I Want for Christmas, which was my favorite movie as a kid. Oh, really? Is that yeah. with Jonathan? No, that's I'll Be Home for Christmas. Uh, no, um, All I Want for Christmas is probably a pretty bad movie, but I love it. It's also, I'm realizing now, the movie where that introduced me to Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall plays Harley Jane Kozak's mom. And um, so that's kind of what sparked my fascination with her and learning about her as a young actress. Um, so, but anyway, it's, it's just like, it's got Ethan Embry in it. It sparked my crush on him. And Thora Birch. So pretty good cast. And anyway, she's delightful in it, Harley Kozak. Huh. Well, interesting that you mention Thora Birch because the series Parenthood is not the first series to be made from the movie. There was oh, wow. another series made from it in 1990. So the following year uh, on NBC, a half hour sitcom. It was a single camera comedy based on Parenthood. And it was, well, I didn't watch it, <laughs> but <laughs> no, me neither. it appears to be much more faithful to the film because the family is still the Buckmans. All the names are the same, except for the um, Nathan and Susan, their family in the movie are the Huffners. On this other TV series, they were the Merricks. Oh. It only lasted 12 episodes, but it got good reviews. And um, there were several people that were famous or went on to become famous. In this version, Joss Whedon was one of the writers on oh, the wow. show. The cast featured the aforementioned Thora Birch, <laughs> credited just as Thora. Oh my gosh, on really? the series. Yeah. That's so weird. She was playing Taylor, one of Gil's kids, the girl who vomits. <laughs> she vomit girl. <laughs> Gil was played by Ed Bagley Jr. Todd was played by David Arquette. Oh wow. And probably the biggest star, well, definitely the biggest star, Gary was played by Leonardo DiCaprio. That's amazing. How do I not know about this? I, I don't no know. Idea. This was several weeks ago. I Do you remember me telling you, I learned something about parenthood, but I want it to be a surprise. Yes, this was it. That's this so cool. This was it. Uh, that series was set in California also. So they changed huh. the setting for that. But so here's a little clip of a scene. How fun with Leonardo DiCaprio and David Arquette. Todd, can I talk to you about something? Fire away. Well, do you ever have, like, fantasies? What do you mean, like, babe fantasies or having the world's fastest car and it can't be picked up by police radar fantasies? 
babe fantasies. Sure. So, it's normal. Sure. Why? Well, if I tell you something, you promise not to tell anyone. Bamboo shoots. Okay. I saw my first breast today. Wait, you mean like in a magazine breast or live and in-person breast? Live and in-person. My first. Well, technically your first and second. <laughs> I mean, I've seen like bosoms in magazines, but that third dimension really adds something. It's funny. It's sort of so obvious. They seem like such obvious choices. Like, of course you went with those actors because the, they feel so similar, but like just one rung below at that time. At that time. Of their, count, of their counterparts. Like, get me Keanu Reeves. We can't get Keanu Reeves. Then get me David Arquette. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. You can find those scenes on YouTube if you just search Leonardo DiCaprio Parenthood. So I think someone cut together a lot of just the scenes that he's in. Oh, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole later. I am <laughs> watching these. That's fascinating. You'll be really happy to know that Max Elliott Slade is in it as Kevin, I believe. Okay. So he played young Gil in the movie, but now he's playing Gil's oldest son. That is excellent news. <laughs> he's like 12. <laughs> <laughs> but in real life, I think he's older than I am. We've talked about this before. It is weird to revisit crushes you had as a child. Because <laughs> you feel like you still have a crush on a minor? Well, I don't, but, but I remember having it. Yeah, exactly. It's so weird. Even though now neither of you are minors, at the time it was a totally innocent crush. Yes. I think That's, you're fine. I think I'm fine. I get, I get why it gives you pause, but I don't think you have anything to feel guilty about. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I was interested to see one of the snippets I found of this other series had dialogue almost straight out of the movie, and it was Gary calling his father. Who are you calling, honey? Dad? Your father? Hello. May I speak to Dr. Lampkin? It's his son. No, it's Gary, his other son. Okay, I'll hold. It also made me realize, because Joaquin Phoenix was so good in that scene, he grew up to win an Oscar. Leonardo DiCaprio's doing that scene, he grew up to win an Oscar. So I think the only conclusion to draw is that Miles Heiser is going to win an Oscar someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's clearly a king-making role. Um. <laughs> or if we want to put a, a, a more crushing bent on it if miles heiser doesn't win an oscar there's something wrong with him oh no <laughs> no we love you come on the show no. <laughs> but so like i said that series only lasted 12 episodes and it premiered at a time when there were a lot of tv shows based on films and none of them seemed to last very long there was ferris bueller's day off right around that time uncle buck Baby Talk, which was based on Look Who's Talking. I actually watched that one. I watched <laughs> Baby Talk. And a series of Working Girl. Uh, none of those lasted. They were all trying to be, you know, like the next MASH. And they weren't. They weren't. Yeah, Scott Bayo is no John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> but it does make you wonder if the 
looser adaptation was to the series' advantage rather than having there be such a clear parallel and it coming out just barely a year after the movie was a big hit. That obviously was going to invite a lot of comparisons. I think a lot of people who've watched the second series of Parenthood maybe didn't even see the movie, or if they did, it might have been a distant memory. So it wasn't drawing such comparisons, setting it up for falling short. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think a lot of people don't even know that there was a movie, which is interesting when it just kind of becomes its own thing. And this feels very different than like another one of my favorite shows, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The TV show was a chance for Joss Whedon to do it right. Because he had been, you know, a young, impressionable uh, writer. And basically his idea got completely changed. You know, he pitched it and people were like, oh, I get it. Her name's Buffy. She's an idiot. Cool. And he's like, no, no, no. It's like ironic, you know, like. Her name's Buffy and she's so strong and competent. And they're like, no, 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 Valley Girl, we're going with it. You know, and and so I think he was kind of heartbroken that his vision got completely changed. With Parenthood, it is interesting to revisit the movie and see how excellent it is. So it's not like this series was a chance to right a wrong or something like that. You know, it was um, it was already excellent. And so, yeah, maybe the only way to also have the series be excellent is for it to be its own brand, you know, just we're not the movie, we're doing our own thing. We're much more dramatic, get your Kleenex. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, after watching the movie, I think the impulse to make it into a TV show is actually very understandable because the movie, while it doesn't feel meandering or shapeless in any way, there isn't really a plot. It's really just kind of a premise and some great characters and you just explore it. And that feels like it lends itself to television a lot better than you know most movies where it's A to B to C to D all the way to Z and then the story is done. Right. And you think, how, how could you adapt that into a series that you might want to last for seven, eight, nine, ten seasons? Once you've run out of story, where do you go? And I thought, well, with a family and a dynamic, you can just explore it forever. Yeah. I found this little promo of the series with Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, who was one of the producers of the film, and they both were producers of the series as well. And they said, I think essentially the same things. The thing that television has always done well and is proving it sort of does better than anybody, which is follow a group of interesting characters. And, uh, you know, and, and you get these storylines that we can follow that are so real, so true, we relate to. There are twists and turns and it's, you know, and it's, just, it's, 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 even, it's more, even more suspenseful because if there's one thing that isn't neat and tidy, it's being a parent. I wanted to come back just to try to produce shows that I could be really proud of. So being able to reapproach parenthood will, I think, you know, means everything to Ron and I. And also, I think good stories can be told better on television. Because if you're on the right story, you can live it every single week. And that's how life works. That's perfect. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm not sure how involved they really were with the series. I suspect it might have just been, yeah, our names are on it. Because (laughs) we made the movie that it's based on. But um, regardless, I think they make really good points. And I think it's a reason why a series based on that film eventually did succeed. Yeah. 
And I also feel like it's probably not an accident that Jason Kadams, who developed this series, had done a TV series that was also based on a film, Friday Night Lights. So he was not a stranger to taking a, you know, two-hour film and stretching it and mining it for several seasons worth of stories. Such a good point. And those are both such wonderful examples of really excellent films, both of them that get turned into really successful and beautiful. And and I prefer the series actually to those movies, even though the movies are so good. And they do that in part by being very different from the film. Yeah. Man, I'm so excited. <laughs> I can't even tell you. I'm, I can't wait to watch the pilot again. It's been like five years, I think, since I've seen it. And it's going to be so great. I think it's also been five years for me, too. And I find it surprising that I am such a fan of the series and had never watched the film. I think it really will enrich my experience of watching the series again, because even though they are very different, I think there's a lot of DNA that they share. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we look forward to revisiting this series with all of you as well, whether you're revisiting it or whether you're discovering it for the first time. It's the perfect show, I think, right now when we could all use some comfort and some stability and and just something with a big heart. And that's really how I feel about parenthood. And and so I just, I hope it's a wonderful experience for all of you to, to watch it with us. Well, thank you for joining us on this first episode of the Parenthood Pals podcast. Until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true.